0: morning. (laughs) Guys, it is really good to see you all after three months off. I'm using like Brown and Evelyn came this morning. It's good to see you guys. Um, I sent well, one if you haven't been here. I just got back from a three months of sabbatical leave and I sent an update on what I did on the sabbatical in the July 20th weekly update email. So if you didn't get that, I'm happy to send that to you. But the short version is, is that I feel deeply rested. I got to meet a couple of my goals. I got to spend some time with my family, especially I've got five nieces that range in age from 11 down to six. And they don't live around here, so I I got to spend some quality time with them. And i had gotten a concussion, a pretty bad one, before I went on sabbatical. So I had some time to let that heal up. And I know a lot of you guys have been praying for me and asking how that is. And I'll just tell you, it's about 80% better, maybe 85%. I still have a few little lingering... um, side effects that are staying around, but my concussion doctor assures me that should go away within the next few months. So I think I'm, I'm on my way to better. And I just want to say, and I said this in the email, but just like a real thank you to you guys as a congregation that I'm really deeply grateful to you and the staff and the board for allowing me to have that time off. It really does help me refresh. I came back like feeling excited. I know Rachel and I just not coming to church for three weeks. I think we both... Um, Felt like, man, we just really miss it. And even if I weren't a pastor or a leader at the church, like, I would come to this church. And so I just want to tell you guys how much I appreciate just the relationships that we have and how much I love you and missed you. So now I'm back. And I was trying to think, well, gosh, it seems like a little bit of pressure. What do you preach on if you've been gone for three months? And I haven't been thinking about anything sermon-related. I've been laying on a hammock listening to audiobooks. But the one thing that kept niggling the back of my mind was the book of Esther, and so that's where I'm going to begin. And because I've been on sabbatical, I came back and Ken and I talked for like hours last week, just trying to catch up on all the different church business. I noticed that he had a little cardboard cutout of my face that he was showing <laughs> up. He's hilarious. He is hilarious. So anyway, so we caught up and he said that he already had a few like sort of standalone sermons in his mind for the month of August. And he was like, that way you can do whatever you want. So I'm doing Esther, he's doing standalone sermons when he preaches, and then we'll come back together in September, and we're going to do a sermon series in September on like hard topics, talking about like hell and exclusivity in religion and the patriarchy and things like that. So that'll be fun. But for right now, <laughs> we're going to do something a little lighter, actually. We're going to do Esther, and to start with Esther, I want to I begin by asking you guys to imagine something with me. I want you to imagine that our area of Michigan here in Southeast Michigan has spent the last six months doing almost nothing except celebrating its excellence. And there's been festivals and 5Ks and art exhibits and fireworks shows. And these are things that I know we do every year anyway, but just imagine that we've been doing them every single day for the last six months. And then at the end of this six months, we decide to have a giant rockin' party down at the ARB. And it's a seven-day party that's there to mark the conclusion. And it's a little bit like I was trying to think like what that might be like, like maybe like Ipsy Beer Fest, if you guys went to that this weekend. We could hear it from our backyard. We'll <laughs> just say that. But this party down in the Arb, imagine it as even like going longer into the night, and it has lots of great food. And there's wine and there's beer that's just flowing and the music's hopping and the introverts have, you know, scuttled away to a little part of the Arb to enjoy themselves. And then there's like ridiculous lavish things like couches that have been brought in and people are just strewn around them and there's like golden lanterns hung from all the tallest trees and it's this sort of magical space. And then everyone is invited, like everybody And so on the last day of this giant party, at the end of this six months, the men start to gravitate toward the area, you know, down near the river where it's really pretty there in the Arb, and they're joking, and they're laughing, and they're egging each other on, and they're having a good time. And then some of the women are like, well, you know, we'd like to maybe have a little bit more of a formal end to this party. And so the women go up to like the Ann Arbor City Club on Washtenaw, and they decide that they're going to market with a feast. And the wine's flowing there too, but maybe it's a little less raucous. And this sort of setting is the beginning of the story of Esther. Right? This is what the opening chapter of this book describes this kind of incredible debauchery and this lavish, gluttonous, celebratory living. Now, when I heard the, the story of Esther growing up, and maybe you heard it this way too, it was always told as like this really solemn tale about this young, chaste woman who saved her people from certain doom. And it is that on some level. But I know I miss some of the comic aspects of the book because it was never taught to me as comedy. And the more I've been reading Jewish commentators over the last two or three years, that's, that's Kins' influence on me here, the more I've started to appreciate like, some of the genuinely funny elements of what's at work in this story. So if we take this opening scene of the party, right, in the book of Esther, the party's being thrown by the king of Persia for everybody living in his vicinity, and that king's name is Xerxes, right? That's a fun name. Like, try, I tried to say it 10 times really fast this morning. It's a good thing you weren't watching this. I are like, Xerxes, Xerxes, Xerxes. Okay. Now Xerxes, now you won't forget it, right? He was a real king of Persia. But many Hebrew scholars think that the translation of the king's name in Esther has actually been wrong. It's not really Xerxes, or at least it's questionable. The name in Hebrew is Hazarus, right? Which isn't the name of a real Persian king at all. It could, maybe with some stretching, be shown to be linguistically related to Xerxes, or maybe his, his son, Ataxerxes, and you'll see all of these different translations in your various Bibles. So my NIV says it's Xerxes. Some of you might say Ataxerxes, and some of the older translations say Ahasuerus. You think, well, that's just kind of weird. But it seems likely that what happened was that the translators took a made-up name, Ahasuerus, and made it Xerxes later on to make the book feel a little bit more real. But the made up name might have been meant to help indicate that the book is one of historical fiction. So Esther's a story that's perhaps somewhat based in historical accounts, but it was more likely written with goals other than recording historical events. You know, there are some books in the Bible that do seem to be written with the intention of recording historical events you got the Gospels and the books of Kings and Chronicles, but Esther isn't one of those. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the reasons it might have been written in a little bit, but first I want to to go back to this story with Xerxes, and I'm going to call him that just for simplicity, since that's what my Bible says. We've got King Xerxes who had a wife named Queen Vashti. Xerxes and Vashti, those are like great names. So if you picture the two of them, King Xerxes, he's down by the Huron river and he's drunk out of his mind and he's got all the other men in town. And the text says he was in high spirits from wine. And when he's in very high spirits from this wine, he turns to seven eunuchs who have these ridiculous mumbo jumbo names in Hebrew. And he says, drunkenly, somebody needs to go get my wife. She's so beautiful. She's the most beautiful woman in the whole world. Tell her to wear her crown and come down here so I can show her off to all the other fellas. So these seven eunuchs, they go up to the city club where Queen Vashti is entertaining the women of the town, and they relay the king's message. They say, well, the king would like you to wear your crown and come down to the arb so that he can show you off to all the fellas. And I think Queen Vashti responds to the eunuchs in the way that most of us women, anyway, in here would respond, right? She says, there is no way in, I'll just say, H-E double hockey sticks, that I am going down to the river by myself to be ogled by thousands of drunk guys, right? A queen has got her dignity, not to mention the safety issues. Well, the Midrash, which is ancient commentary on the Hebrew Scriptures, a lot of um, Jewish scholars and rabbis have conjectured that the king asked the queen to wear only her crown, which then adds to the unseemliness of the request. So then when the king learns of the queen's refusal to come at his bidding, to be paraded around before all of his friends, he seeks counsel from his advisors, who are also drunk, about what to do. And so one of those very clever advisors pipes up with this. He says, well, Queen Vashti's done wrong. Not only against the king, but also against the nobles and the peoples and all of the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands, us, and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she wouldn't come. This very day, the Persian and the Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct, they will respond to all of the king's nobles, us, in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written into the laws of Persia and Medea, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. And also let the king give her royal position to someone else who's better than her, you know, someone who obeys. And when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all of his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands, us, from the least to the greatest. And the king, in his state, he thought this sounded like a grand idea. So he did that. Now first, we notice here that these advisors, they weren't concerned about the queen disrespecting the king in his official capacity, right, as like ruler and lawmaker, And they weren't concerned that, you know, she might entice other people to also disobey him in that capacity as ruler and lawmaker. No, they were concerned that since she didn't come at her husband's bidding, their wives wouldn't come at their bidding. And most rabbinical commentators I looked at, they think that the nobles were actually worried about like a national sex strike. That the woman would just say no all of the time. Second, we notice the ridiculousness of how this king ruled. It says that if the king issued a royal decree, it would become law that could never be repealed. All right, so these two opening details, they help us discern that the story is meant to be a comedy. Right, this absurdity of like a national sex strike by the women, the absurdity of a well-oiled empire that's known for its administrative expertise, just creating laws out of thin air that can never then be repealed. Like that's a ludicrous way to live and to rule. Right? So the, the Persian empire was renowned for its management, and this is kind of just poking fun at that well-oiled machine. So I think with this book, we have to think of it a little bit more like a Shakespearean comedy like Much Ado About Nothing, or maybe like a Greek farce. Like I remember I read The Lysistrata in college, and I remember not loving it, but it was a book about where all the women of the country go on a sex strike, right? And it's meant to be funny. And the descriptor that kept coming up in my studies describing um, Esther was burlesque. The book of Esther is burlesque, and burlesque simply means an absurd exaggerated, tawdry comedy. Right? It's this over-the-top, ridiculous melodrama. And I guarantee that if you grew up evangelical, as I did, or maybe you were more conservative Catholic or Lutheran, they never taught you that Esther is burlesque. Right? So learning from some of these Jewish stories and Jewish um, teachers has opened this different world for me. So this event, the queen holding on to her dignity... While turning down the king's request to appear, perhaps naked, at his drunken party, is the catalyst for the entire story of Esther. And so the king decides that because of her refusal, he needs a new queen, right? Instead of looking for one another, noble families, or maybe some other um, neighboring royalty that was traditional, what he does instead is he makes this sort of blanket call for all of the pretty young ladies in the land. And he brings them in and gathers them into a royal harem and he gives them 12 months of beauty treatments. Now, there's a lot that I'm tempted to say about this. Gathering these young ladies, probably their teens or tweens, into a harem and soaking them in perfume. I feel like, you know, I could easily judge this by modern standards and perhaps it should be judged that way to help us process it. But I think it helps to remember that this is a comedy and that even in that time for a powerful king, the idea of asking all of the pretty young ladies to come and live at the palace so that you can bathe them in myrrh for a year is outlandish, right? It's this mockery of the lavishness of the the upper classes, probably a mockery of the Persian empire in general. And it's in this like Miss uh, Miss Persia pageant that we, the readers, meet Esther, right? She's one of the many girls who was brought into this harem, and she's kind-hearted, and she's beautiful, and she's charming, and she's a young Jewish woman who's living in this vast Persian empire, which stretched all the way from India down to Ethiopia. And what we're told about Esther is that she's an orphan, and she's been raised by her older cousin, who's a man named Mordecai, And Mordecai, we're told, has strong Jewish heritage. So the text says he'd been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. It's easy for me to just sort of read through things like that, like, okay, blah, blah, blah. And it's saying he has links to the end of the book of Kings and the Hebrew scriptures. But there's actually something really important captured in that. The point of all of that is that the author wants us to understand that Mordecai and Esther are very Jewish. These are Jewish people living in exile in a foreign land. And Mordecai is a Jewish man living in a land, and he's still um, loyal. He's a loyal subject to the Persian king. He once overheard two of the royal guardsmen talking about overthrowing King Xerxes and assassinating him. And so he immediately went to Esther and he said, you need to tell the king that there's these people plotting to take his life. And she did that. And that won Mordecai the king's respect. But even with the respect of the king, even with his loyalty to the Persian empire, Mordecai still advises Esther to keep her Jewish heritage a secret. All right, so he says, just keep that on the down low. And so as she's earning favor with the king and she's rapidly sort of rising among the ranks and becoming his favorite from among the entire crowd of young women, she does it under the auspices of being Persian, denying her Jewishness. And as we can see, that is a good setup for the makings of a good plot to brew, which we'll look at more in the next couple of, well, the next couple of times that I preach. Before we close out today, I do want to just briefly explore some of the reasons that Esther might have been written down if it wasn't to record historical events. And it does seem to be, in no small part, entertainment. You know, the book's brought out every single year to be read at Purim, which is a Jewish holiday. In the festival of Purim, it's instituted at the end of this book in chapters 9 and 10. It's the only Jewish holiday that's not contained in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. So the book of Esther, it serves as an origin story for that holiday, right? So it's sort of entertainment, it's an origin story. But there are a couple of other themes that I'm going to hit on specifically in the next couple of, um, next couple of weeks. Specifically the story, I think, it lends some wisdom on how to spot corrupt people and corrupt regimes, and give some strategies on how to deal with them, right? So while it's farcical, even farces have their like underlying truths to them. You know that just hearing about the beginning of the story this morning, we can already imagine the kind of ruler that Xerxes is likely to be, right? He loves an excess of everything. He loves displaying his power and his wealth. He's easily persuaded to make silly decisions by his advisors, which we'll see him do more than once. Does this sound maybe somewhat? Familiar? <laughs> perhaps the main reason that Esther endures is such a beloved book of scripture is because the story is meant to strengthen the pride of the Jewish people who are living in the diaspora. In other words, it's an encouraging story for minority people who are living under an oppressive foreign empire. You know, my wife Rachel likes to remind me, she said something once that has like really stuck with me. She says, powerful groups tell themselves stories of vulnerability, while oppressed groups tell themselves stories of strength. Like powerful groups tell themselves stories of vulnerability. And oppressed groups tell themselves stories of strength. And if you've ever been to like a black church, like you're going to learn that you are a son or daughter of the Most High King and that you are blessed. And you know, they're speaking in, into the, like, the power of what it means to be a son and a daughter of the king. If you go into like a white evangelical church, you might hear something different, valued. And so Esther is a story of strength. It's meant to build up and to encourage people who are living in hardship, to remind people that they have worth and value and that they have a courageous culture that perseveres and that overcomes hardship. And so we'll look at that theme also in the next couple of weeks as our opener to Esther, I thought I would call this one. Esther is burlesque. Just a, you know. Let's have a little meditation. I'm going to keep this one a little bit lighter this morning. So, oftentimes, if you've not been here before, we like to take two or three minutes of silent or guided meditation. So, I'll just have you guys start by just getting comfortable, taking a couple of deep breaths, and in this first minute or so. I want you to just identify the last time you felt real joy. Not just happiness, but you know, like that sheer just joy of living. And as you identify that, start to think about like what it is exactly that brought you joy. How you felt. If it's sensory, you know, like what it felt like or tasted like or smelled like. And we're just going to sit in that for a few minutes. I'll just say, come Holy Spirit. I just ask that you reveal the joy in our lives. Let's spend a little bit of time just in thankfulness to God. Just stating in your mind, like, I'm grateful for those friends or I'm grateful for a beautiful dinner or meal or my kids' smile, whatever it is. And as you start to thank God for what brings you joy, you can also begin to start to thank God about other things you're thankful for in your life. And let's just spend a minute or two in that space. Lord God, we thank you for all of the goodness and abundance in our lives. We thank you for people who love us and who we love in return. We thank you for the moments of joy that are brought in our lives, Lord, whether it's looking at nature or you know, like for me seeing my little nieces filled with joy and wonder at the world. Lord, we thank you for all of the goodness and we acknowledge that everything that we have comes from you. Yeah, we bless you and we thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen.